welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Net Health. I, they were representatives were just at Graham Sessions, so I met with them a couple of weeks ago. They are so nice, such a great company. So, what do they do? They have Redoc, powered by XFit. It's a cloud based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution, plus, opt in to completely outsourced billing services. That's the best way to optimize revenue. Imagine PT billing, coding, and compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. So, to learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services, check them out at nethealth.com slash healthy. Okay, so today's episode, I am so excited to have Nick Tuminello on today. Uh, Full disclosure, he has given me my strength training program over the last year or so, and it has been amazing, but that's just a side note. So Nick Tuminello is a 2016 NSCA Personal Trainer of the Year and the Editor-in-Chief of the NSCA Personal Training Quarterly Journal. He is the author of three books, Building Muscle and Performance, Strength Training for Fat Loss, and Your Workout Perfected. His new book's coming out soon. He's been a trainer for over 20 years, is the former strength coach for Team Ground Control MMA, and has trained professional athletes in field, court, combat, and physique sports. You can find out more about him at nicktuminello.com. And like I said, his new book's coming out soon, so I think you can pre-order it now. So what do we talk about in today's episode? Obviously, exercise prescription, but we talk about how to apply the four principles of strength and conditioning to program design. Once you get these principles down, that's all you need. Um, Progressive and regressive load management why the Socratic method should be used when discussing training philosophies, Nick's approach to new fitness fads, and much, much more. So I'm sure a lot of you in my audience are already familiar with Nick. He is a wealth of knowledge, and we had such a great conversation. I'm so proud to call him a friend, and it was super great to have him on. So I hope you all enjoy this episode with Nick Tuminello. Hey, Hey, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you on. I appreciate you having me on and thank you for all you're doing to the field to provide myself and people like me like a platform. Oh, anytime. And, and you and I met last year, no, earlier this year, actually, at the San Diego Pain Summit. You were part of a great panel that I moderated with, it was you and Jason Silvernail and Ben Cormack and Jonathan Fass. And a lot of great info there. And I think, if, I think people can still get that recording if they're interested, right? As far as I know, yeah. I think all the San Diego Pain Summits have been recorded and are available online for, for purchase. Today we're going to talk about, we got, well, first we got a lot of questions from people on Facebook, one of which Jason Silvernail, who we were joking beforehand, I feel like he should do the interview, which maybe one day he will interview you and we'll, we'll put it on the podcast anyway. Um, but one thing that I hear often from people in the physical therapy world is that physical therapists are not good with prescribing exercise or we're not good with learning strength and conditioning principles. So if we can, I would love for you to take us through some of the basic principles of strength strength and conditioning that you use every day with your clients. 
Sure. Well, actually, this is something that I wrote an article for the Personal Trainer Quarterly uh, NSCA Journal about, and I titled it A Principle-Based Approach to Programming or Program Design. That's a title that I came up with, and you know, it was playing off of the evidence-based approach, right? So I, I can, I'll just give you the verbal version of that article without getting into any specific references and making it as easy as possible. There are, and we'll, we'll circle back to this based on our little talk before we, you know, kind of got on, got, went live here, circle back to the importance of, of taking a principle-based approach. So, so there's four basic principles that most people in the health and fitness and, and, and other allied health professions, physical therapists, you know, uh, personal trainers, strength coaches are familiar with. And they're as follows, principle of specificity, principle of individuality, principle of variation, and what's the other one? Oh, principle of overload, progressive overload. So those are the four. Now, what I talked about in this article, and this is something that comes from me now, is that normally we hear those principles provided in kind of their own ways, right? But what I proposed in this article was that if you are to take a principle-based a principle -based approach, which is the approach I talk about taking, that they actually work best if you utilize them in a decision-making manner, almost like people say, talk about what is your cl clinical decision-making process? Well, my strength conditioning programming decision-making process predicates on using those principles in a sequential manner because one provides you information that is important to the other and that you really can't properly utilize one until you understand the other one, right? So here is the kind of hierarchy of principles, if you look at it that way, that I, that I utilize. First is principle of specificity. Second is principle of individuality. Third is principle of progressive overload. And fourth is principle of variation or uh, variety, right? Now I would say the last two, you could probably flip those two, but it's the, it's the first two that I think are the biggest. Now, let me, let's bracket that for a second and what those come out in questions. First is, what's the individual's goal? Because you can't apply the principle of specificity until you understand the goal. So that really is the first determinant. That's what it looks like in practical terms. What is the goal? Not about me, not about my chosen methods. What goal, what does their goal determine I need to use in regards to programming approach? Because not every approach is best for all goals. Prime example, are you primarily trying to look at fat loss, or you're primarily looking at maximal force production, which is training words for strength. There are different programming approaches to maximize those, um, to create an environment to maximize those types of adaptions, which is all programming is. It's about creating adaptions. So obviously, yes, you, some of them, they're not mutually exclusive. Can you work to strength and also lose some fat at the same time? Of course you can. But we're looking at how to maximize one or the other because we have to have primary and secondary goals. So first is principle specificity. What is the goal? Then the next question is, well, what is the person's abilities slash limitations? So that's the principle of individuality. Basically, okay, there's lots of ways to work on strength, force production, but maybe this person is not built based on their hip structure, based on medical profile. Maybe they just don't like certain things, preferences. Uh, maybe they're not built to do heavy deadlifts from the floor with the arbitrary height of the Olympic plates, the 45-pound plates, right? So that is the principle of individuality. 
individuality is goal specific or sorry it's um it's not only about their goal but it's also about their training environment what kind of areas are they working out in well let's say they go to a, a big box gym twice a week but they work out at home twice a week because they have very busy schedule on certain days it's not realistic based on the times they're coming in and out of work with traffic that they can't necessarily get you know with kids whatever it is and maybe at home they only have dumbbells up to 50 pounds and a few resistance bands and a, and a stability ball so though that's where the principle of individuality applies so then the next question is how do i provide progressive overload within the methods that i have determined which are the exercises work well for them based on their individual uh, individuality individual movement patterns ability medical history and training environments so then from there we're starting to narrow things down. The last question is, how do I vary the things that I'm giving them to keep things interesting? Now, some, now then, here's where people sometimes lose it. It depends on the individual's goals. Some people are just looking for general fitness. If it's general fitness, normally they're looking for more of an experience. They like a little more variety. If someone is a little bit more, I say this in quotation marks, serious, more of like a gym rat type where they're chasing certain numbers and like they want to boost their deadlifts up or they want to boost their chin ups up, whatever it is, maybe it's the amount of push-ups they do, whatever it is, then they're going to look for a little more consistency that reflects whatever direct metrics they're looking to have. And those are metrics that you decide again, back to principle of specificity. How do you know you're getting stronger? How do you know you're getting fitter? Whatever it is, goals are different. Some people it's chasing a bigger back, other people it's chasing bigger lifts. Other people, it's just simply working out three times a week, more than they were before, or maybe it's four times a week. Maybe it's twice a week because they weren't getting to the gym more than once a week. That is an individual thing, again, taking us back to the first one. So that is my hierarchy, and that is basically my approach to programming. It's those questions. What's the goal? What's the ability? And then what exercises can we use based off those previous two? And then how do we vary those concepts based off of the third one. And so when you're designing a program, so let's take a case study. We'll use me as the case study. So I came to you earlier this year and I'm fine talking about this. Um, so I give permission. Um, I came to you earlier this year and after we met in San Diego and I was, I think my goals were, I wanted to be able to do a push up. I wanted to be able to feel like my arm's not going to you know, come out of the socket. I was really looking for stability in my shoulder. Um, I didn't, I wasn't necessarily looking to lose weight. Um, but, and I wanted something that was going to be fun that would fit into 30 to 40 minutes and then I can go to the gym three times a week. So those are my goals. And I think that they were pretty specific, right? So and I think you were looking for more muscle building. Muscle building. Yeah. 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 You know, basically look, look better in, you know, you know, um, in the mirror kind of. Right, right. Yeah. And so the program that you gave to me had a lot of variation to it a lot, which was awesome because I'm still using it and I don't get bored. Um, but how do you decide when you're doing these programs on, let's say you, on what kind of weights are you going to use? How are you going to progressively overload? Because I think that's where people kind of get caught up. You always hear that um, oftentimes people are underloaded 
and and then they end up perhaps with an injury because they weren't ready to do X, Y, and Z because they were underloaded to begin with. So how do you work through progressions, regressions, and proper load management? All right. So there's two two answers to that same question because one is individual and the other one is has to do with a, a, a kind of a general programming approach. So let me answer the individual one first. If, if the question is, what weights do I start with, which is what a lot of, of clients and um, patients will ask their trainers or physical therapists, obviously client or patient depends on the, the context of who they're working with. Um, you, you basically say, well, that's determined by your ability your strength. So what that does is you provide them a rep range. So let's say I say, Karen, I want you to do four sets of six to eight repetitions of trap bar, you know, squat or deadlift. I call it a trap bar squat because it looks more like a squat because your torso is more upright. But I understand some people call it a trap bar deadlift because you're picking it up off the floor and it's dead weight. Whatever you name it. That what I'm telling you there is that I want you to use a weight that's heavy enough that you can't do any more than eight reps before your form breaks down. Now, yeah, you might be able to cheat out a few more reps, but I'm looking for no more than eight in the, the technique that we have deemed we'd like to see you do it in. So I'm determining the weight based on the rep range, but in regards to what weight that exactly translates into when you're on the gym floor doing it, is going to be have to be determined by you. So that's the way I put some metrics on it. And the reason why that's important is because that's going to change from set to set. So for example, if I give you, and this is important to keep, to keep in mind for people who are training in a big box gym, especially at 530 at night when everybody and their dog is there. So let's say I give you uh, dumbbell presses and I say, give me four sets of six to eight reps. Well, even if you're resting three minutes between sets, and let's forget about whether we're giving you paired sets or tri-sets and keeping you busy. Let's just stick, keep it simple and just talk about the dumbbell presses, for example. You're going to have subsequent fatigue at each, at each subsequent set, or you're going to have fatigue at each subsequent set. But if I'm giving you the same rep range, it's more likely you're not going to be able to use the same weight each time because you're going to lose about 5 to 10% of strength in each, in each set. Now, obviously, it's going to be a little bit individual depending on your muscular endurance and recovery. So at that point, I'm actually making you use maybe three different sets of dumbbells at that point. Or I just give you a rep range where I say six to eight. But if I just said eight reps every time, you're going to have to use lighter weights to get eight reps on the fourth set than on the first set. That's why I give you a rep range. And I might say, okay, on the first set, I want you to give me eight reps. The second set, give me seven to eight. The next set, give me six to seven. The next set, give me at least six, maybe even five. And that way I've allowed you to only use one set of dumbbells. That actually makes more sense in a big box gym scenario because once you've grabbed one piece of uh, equipment, keep that equipment versus having to keep trading them in back and forth because, okay, you were you're, you're using the 25s. Now you got to drop the 20s and, and they've only got two sets of 20s and somebody's already using them because they're like the hottest dumbbells to use in the gym. Basically the Basically, the 15s to 35s, they're the toughest ones to grab at 6 o'clock at night or 5.30 at night. So these are all things to consider. Um, now, that's a more specific scenario in regards to individual strength and also individual training environment. If you're training at home and it's just you then and your cat's there watching you, then no, no problem, right? All right, now, more of a general approach. Um, progressive overload depends how I'm going to progress you gradually 
is going to depend on your main primary goal. And it, I actually did a Facebook post about this a few weeks ago. It becomes very simple. If your main goal is strength, force output, force production, I'm going to progress you by gradually making the weights heavier. Now, we're going to bracket that. We're going to come back in a second because there's some nuance there. If your main goal is more hypertrophy, which is basically muscle building, right? It's what we all know as bodybuilding. Uh, just because you're trying to build muscle in certain areas doesn't make you a bodybuilder, by the way. Um, in that case, I'm more going to progress you in volume. Yes, I understand that you can lift heavier and also gain muscle, but most people are, that are looking for muscle building are not as comfortable with going in really heavy loads and sometimes they get bored with doing six sets of four and things like that. I, you're, I'm one of them right now. So I would much rather do four sets of 12 than, and however many reps that is, than to do an equivalent of if you reverse that, right? 12 sets of four. <laughs> that would, I would get bored. All right, of the same exercise. So it's all about volume. So I'm going to look at increasing, gradually increasing your volume over time if muscle building is the goal. If conditioning is the goal, which is basically how to become more fatigue resistant, um, which can help you help, help you, if you can resist fatigue, what else can you help prevent? That's a strategy to, to minimize fatigue-related injury. Well, in that case, I'm going to actually gradually reduce your rest periods. Now, there's a point at which in all of these that you kind of can reach a, a cap where it's just unrealistic to progress any further. Now, circling back to strength. If it was the case that I could give you heavier weight every time, I'm 38. I've been lifting weight since I've been 13 years old. I would be squatting 2,000 pounds by now. <laughs> yeah, that's not really realistic. Exactly right. So <laughs> what that would look like in practical terms would be as follows. Provided if someone's goal is strength, obviously we're going to give them a, base, uh, a baseline, a training foundation first of using lighter weights and get, building up their form and tissue tolerance, whatnot. But let's say you've been through that. It would look something like this. I might start you with <clears throat> uh, four sets of six reps. Next week, I give you five sets of five reps. And obviously, there's a window there. Next week, I give you six sets of four reps. So notice I've given you more sets, but as the sets went up, uh, as the sets increased, the weight went up because you're doing less and less reps. So I've, I've forced you to use heavier and heavier weights. But there's going to be a point at which in that program, within that same exercise, trap bar, dumbbell press, whatever it is, that you're, because of the principle of adaption, the body's adaptive, you're going to kind of reach your limits where you're not going to be able to do any consistently heavier and heavier weights. Even if we're starting, I mean, yeah, we could throw in like quarter pounds and whatnot. But at that point, you might go, oh, I'm just ready to try something new. So what I say is you should be getting stronger every week on a strength-based program for about four to six weeks. <laughs> and at that point, what we do is we just switch the movement pattern, uh, but it still could be something similar. So a lunge turns into a Bulgarian split squat. You know, a barbell squat turns into a trap bar squat or something like that. So it's a similar movement pattern, but it just varies enough to where we're not just hammering the same movement. Last point here, the reason why is because I'm not training a powerlifter. I'm training somebody who is an athlete or a fitness enthusiast or a weekend warrior who's trying to get stronger in the weight room. They don't need to be a master of specific lifts. They need to do all kinds of lifts in a competent way. So we don't need to say focused on like three big lifts or two big lifts because nothing is a big lift to you. They're all just lifts to you at that point. 
Right. And that goes back to uh, that individuality and what are the goals. So if someone came to you and said, I want to be an Olympic lifter, obviously that program is going to look much different because you're going to be concentrating on what is the lift they have to do if they want to literally get to the Olympics. It's yes, it's about the lift now. It's not about them. And I will first say right off the bat that I don't train powerlifters and don't train Olympic lifters. I know you understand that. You're not saying I do, but I know people will be like, well, he should be talking about that. Just not what he does. Well, you're right. But from a global standpoint of what you're talking about goals, a hundred percent, it's what, what the point you're making is not about Olympic lifts is saying that the, the pro the approach is determined by the goal. Going back to my first point about specificity, it's not determined about my bias as a trainer or my favorite pet uh, applications of exercises, just because I like to do powerlifting, which I don't, bores the crap out of me, doesn't mean that everybody else who trains with me therefore gets powerlifting programs. And unfortunately, that's what we've been seeing for a while. And it's actually getting worse because things have become more about the trainer and less about the individual client, as we've been seeing in the, in the, in the current climate of things. Yeah, I see that quite a bit with patients. Like I have women who are training with someone at the gym who he himself is a power lifter and that's what he likes to do. And so he has women who that is not their goal. Their goal is to be able to get through their day, to not have uh, aches and pains and to feel strong. It's not to be able to deadlift 200 pounds, 300 pounds, whatever it may be. Um, but I definitely see that quite a bit and it gets a little frustrating from my standpoint. So here's a question. It leads me to an interesting question is from this. Pause pause it for a second. I want to make a strong point here. The way a lot of those trainers, if you ask them, well, so I'll say two things. One, something I've always said is that a lot of personal trainers, and I understand a lot of people are doing group training these days, right? But personal training, a lot of times trainers don't give personal training. What they give is private lessons in whatever that trainer's bias is. So if you're a power lifter as a trainer, interestingly, all your clients somehow need to get better at the three big lifts. If you're really into yoga and Pilates, somehow all your clients seem to get need to be better at doing the pulsing movements and lack mobility and flexibility, right? So it's kind of the lens we look at. That's normal human nature. But that's not personal training for their goals. It's private lessons in whatever the trainer's bias is. Now... If you ask those trainers, they're all very well-intentioned people and they're only doing the best way they see fit. Uh, they'll justify what they're doing by telling you this, which is the famous line. Well, I don't give people, I'm not there to give people what they want. I'm there to give people what they need. Well, give people what they need is not being a facilitator. That's being a dictator, right? So what I say is a facilitator gives people what they need to achieve what they want. So I give people what they need too. The problem is, is the trainer is determining what their end goal should be. What I'm doing is I'm saying, why are you here? What is your end goal? And then I'm giving you what you need to get to that goal. I'm not diverting you to say, well, you really don't want that. You want this up here. That's the fundamental difference. And that's a huge difference. And from a, let's say, uh, I'm a physical therapist and I want to approach someone's personal trainer to maybe talk about the program that they're doing because let's say it's running counter to what the the patient's diagnosis or physiology needs at the moment how do you suggest a therapist or even just another professional approaching another a, a trainer approaching another trainer 
what do you suggest to be the best way to approach that without um, being like a snarky or bitchy or, or being a jerk or being, or being thought of as a jerk by the other person? Well, uh, you can't really control that. You can only control how you handle the situation, right? You can't handle, you can't control scenarios you're in. You can only control how you handle yourself in the scenario. Uh, I would just say it, the answer is simple, Socratic method. Ask, ask questions, ask questions, and genuinely listen and genuinely be interested. Don't ask a question because you've been, you're going through some sort of trope that you've memorized, but the whole time you're looking around, you're looking at your phone, you got your arms crossed, you're showing that you're not really listening. No, listen, and you now, okay, what questions do you ask? Well, the, the starting point is you don't come at, come at it from an approach of you thinking they're wrong and you want them to justify to you. That's already putting them on the defensive. You ask inquiring questions that you're trying to learn and you genuinely should be because that person may know some things that you don't know. So for example, I'm really curious, this would be a sample question, I'm really curious to know so-and-so imaginary patient client has been telling me a lot about your sessions and I'd really love to learn you know, uh, so I have a better appreciation for what, you, for what you're doing and what your understanding of the training is, uh, why, you're, why you're deciding to take that approach with insert name of, of patient or client here. Um, and let them shake that out a little bit. And as they start shaking it out, you start asking other questions. And you have to genuinely, you, it's okay, you might be able to catch them in certain, so, you know, in contradicting themselves, which is kind of what the Socratic method is about. Um, now, what happens from there, and if they still think you're a, you know, if they still think that you're not the type of person they want to talk to, it's on them. And, but, but you tried your, your best at that point. So that's, that's my method, and that goes across the board to any sort of debate we can talk a little bit more about a few other tactics and things, but that's the big one is ask them questions, genuinely be interested, and then also ask them why, don't ask them what is your evidence for that because that obviously has a bad uh, connotation these days. It triggers something. So the way around that is you ask, well, I'm really curious, you know, what, why it is that you believe that. Can you give me some background on that? It's the, it's the new framing for, what's your evidence for that? But it doesn't spark that same defensive, you know, because then all of a sudden people say, oh, well, I've been doing this for 10 years and whatever. And so then, of course, you can start bringing up other things. Okay, well, I've been working with another trainer who had been training for 20 years. So does that mean that somebody would be better off going to the trainer with the most experience? Because if that's, if that's what you're using as your foundation of knowledge, then you know, what about someone who's been 20 years who disagrees with you? Well, well, you know what I mean? You, you catch them in these, you know, and, that, and that's all of us that, that's helpful for all of us to start reevaluating ourselves. Now, some people may just act really uh, defensive because once you start catching them in these contradictions, but at least you get an idea and you're not positioning yourself as just the, the person who's just trying to ding this, just, just the, the gotcha person. And just trying to be, well, I'm, I'm smarter than you. You're not, you know, you're not trying to play that game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's great advice. Okay. So before we move on to some of the questions from different listeners, is there anything that we missed in talking about these basic principles of strengthening and conditioning or anything else more that you'd like to add? Sure. Well, I would just say, 
It, can I, since, since you told me the question you were going to ask me at the end, which you asked everybody is how, what advice would I give to mm -hmm. myself? Can I just, cause this, this has to do with the, yeah. my, so we, can we throw you off and answer it now? That's fine. All right. You know, cause it, obviously Karen and I talked before this interview, right? We, she knows, gives me an idea of what we're going to talk about. So can you, the question that Karen said she likes to finish her interviews with is basically what advice would I give my younger self? Do I, did I have that right? Essentially? Yep, that's correct. All right. So it really actually goes back to the, since we're talking about principles is I would say to focus more on a principle based approach and less on a methods based approach. Now everybody says they're, they're basing things on principles and not methods, but when you really get down to brass tacks, they're not strength conditioning coaches will look at programs and determine whether it's bad or good because it does or does not include certain exercises or methods that they are biased to. Right. That's putting methods before principles without ever knowing what the person's goals are. Physical therapists do the same thing. So when, and you're always going to have these new schools of thought, right? You can never get ahead of all the methods and you can't be an expert in every method and, and school of thought that's out there. But those things come and go like clothing styles. And we have our own trends in the field. We just don't look at them as trends because they're packaged in more scientifically sounding, more anatomically, you know, uh, framed terminologies. But this happened with the TBA drawing crowd. It happened. It, it continues to, to move forward, right? Everybody was short, was uh, retracting their scapulas back in the 80s and 90s, and then it went to packing your shoulders and packing your neck. Well, that's the new version of retracting your scapula. And now we don't hear that anymore. It's other things. So these are methods, right? They sound good, but somehow they're the, they're the new thing. And then somehow people just forget about them. You don't hear about them anymore because they appealed to a certain, they made sense logically, but they didn't really have any sort of print. They didn't really fit with principles of what we understand. So what I would tell my younger self and is what I tell trainers right now is if you focus your training or your rehabilitation approaches on principles and you go from principles up, not methods down, your training or your rehab approach will never go out of date. You never have to look back 10 years ago and go, oh, man, I'm so much different now than I was before. Now, you'll get better at communicating it. You'll get better at expressing those principles, right? You'll refine it. But you won't look back 10 years from now and go, man, that was so 2017. Oh, that was so 1997 because I was so caught up in the TVA this. I was so caught up in the enter your three or four letter certification. That's the hot thing, right? That's where you get, where you go wrong. You can pluck things from it, but if you focus on principles and you use that decision-making process that I provided right from the jump, there is nothing that you will do that you'll look back and go, that was less effective or out of date. You'll tweak, you'll refine, your, you'll turn dials, but you won't have to go to a different station if I can use the radio analogy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And on that note, we're going to take a quick 30-second break to hear from our sponsors, NetHealth. PTs, what do you hope to accomplish in 2018? I bet providing even better patient care and increasing revenue are top on the list. First, expand your visit capacity. Then get paid for your services, ramp up patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance. The good news is there's one solution that brings it all to the table. Redoc, powered by XFIT, is a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. Imagine PT billing, coding, compliance experts taking the back office work off your hands and reporting to you. Learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services at nethealth.com slash healthy. And it, that all comes down to critical thinking. 
Oh, yeah. It all comes down to critical thinking, which is a great segue for my next question from Jason Severnail. And principles uh, provide that platform, that standard for critical evaluation of certain methods. Exactly. So Jason's question is, Nick has read and shared a great deal uh, to fitness audiences about critical thinking. How has this shaped his online presence and communication with others? Yeah, that's a great question, man. Well, I mean, how it shaped my online presence is not really for me to determine. It's kind of like giving yourself a nickname. It's kind of it doesn't work unless other people give it to you and it sticks, right? So what the free market of ideas has determined is my online presence. I would say that um, I'm lucky that people have come to me and said that they appreciate that approach, you know, the critical thinking, the um, help me think more clearly kind of approach. Um, <clears throat> that's about all I can really speak to that. How it's shaped how I communicate? Well, I would just say that understanding that there is a gap between what, what people who value skepticism and scientific evidence, which are normally people who fancy themselves as critical thinkers, they have a premise they're starting with that obviously doesn't value, that knows a lot of the problems with the anecdotes, that has a basic understanding or at least an awareness of three things, logical fallacies, heuristics, and cognitive biases. Now, it's beyond the scope of this interview to get in all those, but there's you know, lots of books that can be read about that kind of stuff. These are the reasons why science and, and, and statistics, scientific method, came up uh, to work against because basically in the short of it is because of how we're, how our brains are wired, we're hardwired. It's very human, normal and natural to misinterpret, misremember and misjudge the evidence of your own experience. We all don't realize we're doing that. We say we know what we saw, but the question there is why have you ever seen a magic show, right? You know what you saw, but you don't know why you don't, you don't know the conclusion and your conclusion about how it happened is probably wrong, which is why we all want to know how did you do that? All right, we just jump to conclusions. We see an outcome, nobody's arguing the outcome. We're arguing the conclusion you drew from why A is connected to B. Because we might, that's where the debates are. And that's where science and statistics came up. So framing my interactions is realizing that I have to see where, what this person that I'm discussing with or debating with or whatever, what do they value? Because a point to them is maybe not a point to me. So, for example, someone who values scientific evidence may say, may use a RCT, you know, randomized controlled trial, or maybe a systematic review meta-analysis, and they look at that as, if I can use American football analogy, that's a touchdown. That's seven points, right? But to this other person who doesn't understand why they should value those things, which that other person would be me 12 years ago, I value people who are under the bar, to use a strength analogy. I value people who've been in the field for a long time. So to them, using, you know, an expert's anecdotes and website that has 100 anecdotes or 100 testimonials and 25 of them are from professional athletes, to them, that's the touchdown. So right now, we are playing on two courts. We're playing on two different courts, right? We're, we're, we're saying, yeah, I scored a touchdown. You scored a or different field, sorry. I'm using a tennis and football analogy at the same time. So, so yeah, you scored, but you're, you scored on a field that I'm not playing on. <laughs> and I scored on a field that you're not playing on. So what I've learned is first, again, going back to Socratic method, is, and this goes back to basically, I would say, debates or discussions. 
argumentation, however you want to frame that. It comes down to this. You have to ask before you start arguing. I don't mean yelling arguing. I mean to start you putting up your propositions. Ask, what would it take for you to change your mind first? And you first have to ask all this about yourself. So that, I would say, the biggest thing is and, have, and understand how they've considered it. And then I know how to speak to you where you're at. Now, obviously, sometimes you realize when, based on those answers, that some people you just go, well, man, we're, we're just not able to communicate here. Okay, fine. But at least you're not going to talk past one another. The real debate is not about the conclusion that you may hold about a given premise. It's about why you hold that conclusion. What have you... Everybody has reasons for what they believe, and everybody thinks they have good reasons for what they believe. The discussion needs to be, what are good reasons? And that is where the disagreement is. Something that you think is not a good reason, they think is a good reason. And that is where the discussion needs to happen. Sometimes you can find a middle ground. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can change people's mind or at least get them to be a little more open to maybe something outside of what, they're, what they believe. But I think if you can start planting little seeds of, well, maybe they did have a point here, or, hmm, you know, maybe I will look at this paper that they told me to read, and then they can, people can kind of take it from there. Sure. Well, I, I think there's room for all voices, um, and I know what you're saying. And so, I, again, I agree with you. It's not my approach, but I understand why people are doing that, um, and that's, that's fine. Uh, I would say it's a little tougher to change minds, but maybe that's not their goal. Maybe they're really speaking to the people who are already in their camp, and that's fine. That <laughs> we, we all need people that represent us, too. Um, so, again, there's room for all voices, but I agree with you. If you're generally trying to change minds, you also have to realize that most people are not going to do a complete flip right there, unless someone like you or me really value scientific evidence and we're already on the same page and if I just say this and you, and you just wham, hit me with a systematic review and say, well, Nick, the way the evidence says this, and I'll go, okay, you're right. I was wrong. And yeah. I, that, that's happened. Yeah, um, that happens to me. Absolutely. Yeah. So, but again, because you have to value that type of evidence in the beginning, and there it goes back to the point I was making before. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Let's go to another question here from Matt Danziger who's such a nice guy. Um, do you know Matt? Uh, we've interacted on online on Facebook, but I've never met him in person as far as I know. As far yeah. as I remember. <laughs> yeah, nice guy. So his question is, what, if anything, has Nick changed his mind about in the past year or two? And what has that changed? In, and how has that changed his practice? Well, perfect segue from what we were just talking about. Um, I would say that... Two biggest ones. One, I'm not, a, I'm not a nutrition specialist. I'm not a dietitian, but certainly nutritional based. Uh, you know, all the things about carbs are not the thing that makes you fat, right? Um, I would say certainly that. Um, also, when I was coming up, you know, it was really the really big push on the organic foods. You know, Whole Foods was getting bigger and, you know, and looking a little bit more into the everything was going to kill you, right? Microwave, everything is, you know, this big conspiracy. And I was, I think I was buying a little bit into that stuff. Um, I've always been a little bit kind of, I never really, I've always been, I grew up with kind of a punk rock, be yourself type person. So I've never really jumped on anybody's bandwagon because I never liked being there, right? I've, I've never liked the authority. I, I Authority from expert authority, not like first responder authority. Um, 
So, but yeah, I definitely was leaning in that direction and uh, kind of, I would say like the naturalistic fallacy, right? So I've definitely changed on those types of things and, and look at those in, in each instance and not just this general approach. Uh, and again, I would say like, you know, getting off the, the carbs are bad mentality. You know, I grew up with my mom was a bodybuilder. I grew up with all that sort of dogma, you know, all oh, you eat, you got to minimize your fruit intake because fruit in has, has fructose, you know what I mean? And that's going to kill your body's ability to burn fat and all these things. So I'm guilty of saying all that stuff. And then as a trainer, I would say certainly guilty of getting too caught up in the uh, standing on wobbly stuff which, you know, was big in the late 90s, early 2000s when I was... You mean the functional training, quote-unquote? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still think that's a legitimate terminology, but like everything else, it, it gets bastardized, right? Um, that's a discussion for another time. Uh, but yeah, I certainly got too caught up in that, right? Um, and then with that, got way too caught up in the, uh, what we would call corrective exercise in the training term, which is basically, you know trying to use some sort of formalized evaluation procedure. Corrective exercise is really about the evaluation procedure. Um, to, and my heart was in the right place because I wanted to pay attention to detail. I wanted to create a more individualized experience. So I understand why trainers do that. But the premise, what I've changed is looking at the evidence of the premise of what all those things are based on, what all those standards of what is normal or what should be normal, right? This is, this is ideal posture. This is ideal way to squat, all these sort of things, uh, which of what these formalized evaluation procedures are based on. I use evaluation procedure as not to use the word assessment, because as soon as you say assessment, people who do screens say, well, I don't do an assessment. I do a screen. And if you do a screen, they say, well, it's, it's an assessment. Ah. So I'm not going to allow you to get away from it. So formalized evaluation procedure, <laughs> that covers all of it. Um, so I've certainly, you know, gotten away from getting caught up in, in what I would say the, uh, as we did the article, the corrective exercise trap, um, getting out of that and not making the, the training direction, not making it about more about the evaluation procedure, making it more about the client and creating a training effect and not trying to fit somebody to some arbitrary um, standards of, of whatever is being dictated by whatever evaluation procedure that I've been taught. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, another question from Jason Silvernail, and he says, I've heard him use the expression PE teacher for adults. What does that mean to him, and why is it important? Well, what it, I would say in simple terms, it, it really comes down to the fact that a lot of us trainers and strength coaches, we have an identity crisis in that we're constantly trying, it seems as if, and I've been around, I think I can speak with some uh, level of experience on this from this, how many trainers and strength coaches I interact with, the hundreds of conferences I go to and all over the world, where we're, we're desperate to show that we're not just people who guide people through exercise, that we do these other more technical things, which is why I would say fringe practices are so common within our field because they're, we're constantly trying to justify ourselves. Or we're not just that person who shows you how to do bicep curls the right way and shows you how to set the Cybex machine. No, 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 no. We're more than that. And that's why we want to buy into things. But the reason why I think it's important to embrace that is to understand that most people who are training with most trainers in most settings, and that's private, semi-private group, or just going into gyms that you're on the fitness floor and helping, are not people who are in the physique 
training realm or in the powerlifting training realm or CrossFit. They're not a gym rat. They're there to be a mom, a dad, a lawyer, an accountant, whatever, who uses exercise for general health and fitness purposes. They're not trying to organize their lives around kitchens and gyms. They're not food prepping. They're not doing all these things. And with that in mind, that exercise in and of itself is about health and fitness, less stress, reducing the risk of all-cause mortality, weight management to offset the things that you're eating. And those are all very valuable things, not just for general health and fitness or those things I talked about, but as we learn about pain and overall health when it comes to achiness and movement capacity, that exercise is more therapeutic from that perspective than it's given credit for, which is why a lot of trainers turn to this corrective exercise world. They think, oh, yeah, well, getting people active will help them weight manage, you know, manage their weight or even lose weight or get a stronger uh, upper body muscles and lower body. But when it comes to all this function and pain stuff, we've got to do this other special stuff, this specific stuff, as if general exercise is not good enough. Now, when I say general exercise, I don't mean individualized to the individual, to the person. It doesn't mean everybody squats the same way. It just means getting people to use their legs in some fashion. That's what I mean by general exercise versus some magical formula, what I call Shaolin monk techniques, right? Like they have the secret of doing something in a very specific order or breathing in a certain way, whatever that is. So that's why I think it's important to embrace basically what I'm here to do, what most clients are there to do is come in to get their regular activity in. That's why they're with most trainers and they just don't want to get hurt and they want to keep coming back. That's PE, that's, that's physical education for populations that are out of school, that don't have it anymore. And it's time that we embrace that and think, man, I'm actually more valuable than I thought when we look at all the benefits of simply doing that. And that is what's been under pushed, under promoted in the field that that's our primary job. And, and I also think that's under promoted in the field of physical therapy as well. I mean, general movement and general exercise is, like you said, beyond important for everything from all-cause mortality, from diabetes, pain reduction, uh, brain health, cardiovascular health, you name it. And uh, like you said, a lot of people don't need to get into the minutia of what's happening on a cellular level. They just want to go to see you. They want to feel better, move better, and live better. Sure, and the, the tech, some people, some trainers have a hard time with that because it doesn't sound technical enough. And I get it because they're saying, well, that's, anybody could do that. How am I going to justify myself? What do the people need me for? Well, let me tell you, the technical aspect comes from how to apply those principles, how to organize and prioritize a program based off the individual's goals and limitations, looking, understanding biomechanics, understanding how to put force across joints in a way that's going to you know, minimize risk of injury, that's going to progressively overload somebody. Those are the technical things that professionals know better than non-professionals. So it is a very technical job, and it is very, it has a lot of, um, you do need to be a technician to understand it, to be a good trainer, aside from the emotional aspects of your clients liking you and creating culture and all that stuff. But that has been underappreciated for just falling into some sort of method, you know, whether it be corrective exercise or this, and that is what is somehow been conflated with um, being a better trainer. And, and it really is the people who are most informed uh, in, in a variety of 
topics, whether it be pain science, whether it be biomechanics, techniques, strength and and conditioning principles, like we said at the top of the interview, it's those people who can make those programs in a way that is simple and in a way that is seamless for their clients. Those are the people who are successful. Sure. Because you, you kind of have to be pretty well versed in something to be able to simplify it for people who aren't in the biz, in the biz so to speak. Correct. Yeah, it's time to bring fitness. What it's my way is trying to bring fitness back to fitness professionals because everything seems to be about performance or about physique, and uh, and they have this idea that if you're not doing that, well, heck, you're just uh, you're working out. You're not training, as they say. Well, what's wrong with working out? I don't think anything's wrong with working out. And I remember I had posted something on social media um, uh, just about the workouts that I do and how much better I'm feeling. And someone said, well, if you're not lifting very heavy things, then why are you even bothering to do it? Well, if you're not, I would say the same thing about driving. Well, if you're not going to drive at a NASCAR level, then why even bother? Right. I mean, there are other reasons to drive aside from being an elite driver, right? Well, I'm going to go grocery shopping. Well, okay, well, I'm trying not to die. How about that? I'm trying to reduce the risk of all cause mortality. If that's not a good goal for you, then I don't know what planet that you're living Right. You know, this is the perception that we goes goes back to. You have a bunch of gym rats who are trainers, and if I can just kind of I don't know go off on a, a soapbox here for a second. I, I say there's two types of trainers in the field. When I just mean by trainers, I mean people who are taking other people's money to give them some sort of exercise direction. You have fitness professionals and you have fitness hobbyists. I understand, yes, I understand a professional is somebody who does things for money, but roll with me here. Professional is someone who takes it as a profession and tries to spend most of their time learning how to, how to understand the technical aspects to do better for other people and understand it's not all about them. A hobbyist is someone who gets really excited about something because it changed their life, and yeah, their heart's in the right place, but they're really just trying to get everybody excited about their thing that they got them excited. Going back to what we said before, if you're really into powerlifting, a lot of times your sessions just seem to be private powerlifting sessions, not personal training. Now, it's different if someone's coming to you for private powerlifting lessons, but most of the time it's not. That could be applied to yoga people, Pilates people, bodybuilding people, functional people, whatever. So don't think I'm just picking on one brand of, of, of trainer here. So that's what we're really coming down to. It's hard for some people to accept what is working for you because perhaps it's not what they would do. And again, it goes back to those principles of individuality and specificity that we talked about earlier. So because I wouldn't say, well, because this really works for me, you have to do the same thing because your goals are maybe not the same as mine. You don't have the availability that I have of being in a gym with everything under the sun, right? So I think we have to be careful when we as certainly health professionals try and insert our what worked for us bias onto everyone else. Sure, and not just what worked for us, uh, but also what we value. Going back to what I was talking about, about evidence, well, the same thing about results is, is different for everybody, right? Um, and that's the thing. But all these things, all the answers are right in front of you if you just ask your clients, your patients, or the people you're debating with. It all. If you notice, every one of these things we've talked about, whatever the context it comes back to the same techniques. Ask more questions and genuinely listen and understand what, what values them. Now, when somebody's paying you for something, it's different when you're just on social media 
engaging in some sort of discussion, debate, whatever. But if you're being paid for something as a professional, then it's your duty to show that person the best direction for them and understand where they are coming from. That could be a fluid process as they become more knowledgeable and you debunk some myths that are common among the media sphere, then maybe those things change. But that you have to guide them through that and not make it about, about you, right? Again, dictator versus facilitator. Yeah. Okay. We have time for one more question here. And since you already answered the question, I usually ask is the last question. We'll, what we'll do is we'll, I'll insert a question from uh, Mike Mocker. So he's, his question is, what would his best advice be for any young entrepreneur in fitness or rehab early on in their career? Well, that's an easy one. And I would say this is also can give you a second answer to the, what you usually close mm-hmm. with. I would change what advice I'd give to my younger self. It goes both ways. I would say this, understand that whether you're in a rehabilitation, whether you're a dietitian, whether you're a strength coach, whether you're a personal trainer, that has its own set of expertise from the relationship side and the technical side. We all realize that there is a business side to things, but that business side among its, in and of itself has a huge sphere of skills that you need to be really good at. Everything from managing social media to any sort of press releases to just managing memberships and, you know, getting paid and all these things, right? Branding, you can't be elite at all of that stuff. So what I would say is if you're opening up a business or whether it be online or in person where you have a facility, a location, I would say if you can find somebody if let's say you're a physical therapist or a trainer, find somebody who wants to focus on the business side of that while you focus on being the face and being the the best physical therapist. You create the community, you provide the programming or the clinical decision-making and the direction, but that person takes care of web stuff, takes care of marketing, takes care of management. And I would say, make sure they have skin in the game. Don't bring someone in who says they have some degree and whatnot and you pay them this much because they've already got, they're already set now. They don't, it doesn't matter whether you exist or not, they'll go for another job. But make sure they have skin in the game too. That way if you succeed, they succeed and everybody's got some similar amount of risk. It doesn't necessarily have to be 50-50, it could be 70-30. But basically, hey, you put work in, if we grow, then you get 30% of a larger chunk and I get 70, whatever it is. I would say that's the smartest approach, and there's plenty of evidence to show that among some of the more successful um, training centers that are out there and, and, and whatnot. That would be the best, and I didn't do a good job of that early on. I was, I was successful with my business partner, who was another trainer, despite what we did business-wise, not because of it, because we were so good and because we had a lot of clients. But let me tell you what, in, that would not have flown would not fly in this current climate. I'm talking about opening up a, a private gym in 2000, 2001. Um, it was nearly the same sort of climate. We, we would have just died a much slower death. I think that's great advice. And it sounds to me like kind of being self-aware of what are your strengths and then trying to find someone who can bring the things that you're missing into your career, into your business, and it starts with being self-aware and it starts with being able, being able to ask for help. And Absolutely. if you can do those things, then I think you're more likely to be successful because we can't, if you do it all, you're going to fail. Can't do it all. Absolutely. And this is, I understand that's a big thing to find somebody 
who's willing to go in, you know, with you in your business, but they're out there. If you've got a good product, you have other people who are smart enough and basically you're both betting on yourselves. So, um, but to me, that's the way that that's the way it rolls. Yeah. A great advice for everyone. And now Nick, where can people find you if they have questions or they want to find your writing or your, cause I, you've got a lot going on. So where can people find you? Appreciate that. Well, easiest place to find me is on my website or social media. If you just look up my name, Nick Tuminello, um, last name is spelled T-U-M-M-I-N-E-L-L-O. Yeah, Google knows me is my, is my fun little word I like to say. And then I've got a little shameless self-promotion here, but I've yes, got a few books you can find on Amazon. Uh, Strength Training for Fat Loss came out in 2014. Building Muscle Performance came out in 2016. And I have a new book that you can pre-order right now called Your Workout Perfected that comes out in beginning of May 2018. And we actually go in specifically about talking about a training for general health and fitness. And that's one of the, some of the points we made here are actually brought up in the book. And I take a lot of pride in talking about how important, we talk about physique training too, we have programs for that. We have performance type training, we have fat loss type training, but also general fitness because it's always, it's ignored in a lot of these books, which is what helps build this perception that if you're not training for one or the other, you're kind of just spinning your wheels, right? So I take a lot of pride in being one of the only books that I know that addresses this and says, oh, it's okay if you're not training to one end of the spectrum and you're just training everyday health and fitness and we provide workout programs for that and debunk some myths and misconceptions about training for all those sorts of goals. Awesome. Well, and we'll have links to all of that in the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode. So Nick, thank you again for coming on. And I'm, it, this was great. I learned a lot. So thanks so much. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in today and listening and downloading and sharing with friends and family. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. And a huge thanks to our sponsor today, NetHealth. If you're looking to expand your visit capacity, get paid for your services, ramp up patient engagement, and eliminate worries about documentation and compliance, then check out Redoc powered by XFIT, a cloud-based, fully integrated EMR and billing solution. To learn more about Redoc and complete revenue cycle management services, check them out at nethealth.com slash healthy. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.